China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in Chinese Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Gerard DePippo, Senior Fellow in the Economics Program at CSIS, and Andrew Polk, Co-Founder of Trivium and a Senior Associate in the Freeman Chair at CSIS. Today we'll be discussing the economic and financial dynamics of a possible Taiwan Straits crisis. So Andrew and Gerard, thanks for joining the podcast. As we always do, I'd like to start by asking both of you for a, a real quick biography. Andrew, tell us a little bit about your background, but I think specific to this conversation, China economics, how was the nexus formed? Yeah, sure. So Andrew Polk, co-founder of Trivium China, we do China policy research. I until recently was running our market service for institutional investors. We've brought someone on to do that, and I sort of oversee that team, but a little bit more removed from it these days. But I'm a China macro guy. I've been doing China macro analysis for about 15 years for, at first, in Beijing at a, a place called the Conference Board, working with multinational companies. And then I was at a place called Medley Advisors, also based in Beijing, working with hedge funds, pension funds, a bunch of people on the buy side part of the world. So started Trivium China six years ago, and now I'm in D.C. running our office here. Gerard. So I've been at CSIS for about a year and a half. Before that, I was in the intelligence community for 11 years. I started at CIA in 2010 doing economics the whole way through, but about halfway through that, around 2015, I pretty much picked up the China portfolio and haven't let go since. That's kind of still what I'm working on. So the reason we brought the two of you onto the podcast today is concerns about tensions in the Taiwan Strait, about deteriorating U.S.-China relations about China's growing military capabilities and, and willingness to demonstrate those in and around the Taiwan Strait have led to a lot of concern about what are the possible military implications? Is China going to invade? What would the U.S. response be? What would the U.S. partner and allied response would be? It seems to me that a relatively underweighted component of the conversation is what are the potential dynamics that surround a military conflict that would both shape a military conflict and the decisions made by political leaders, but also what would be some of the knock-on effects of uh, a crisis or a military conflagration. I can't think of two better guests to help explore this issue than the two of you who are thinking deeply about both the macro and micro economic implications or dynamics at play, but also both of you talk to a lot of investors, a lot of firms, which just for the listener, we're going to call MNCs for speed here, which just means multinational corporation. So as a level set, Andrew, why don't I start with you? you? You engage with, through Trivium, a lot of clients. Can I ask, as a level set question, how are they thinking about current tensions in and around Taiwan, and let me know how those conversations have changed over the last, let's say, 12 months. Yeah. So good question. I think we're going to get into a lot of this throughout the conversation today. But, you know, just to set out from the beginning, when we talk about private sector actors, there's obviously a lot of different types of private sector actors. There's, of course, the MNCs, the actual corporations doing business in China or, or in Taiwan. Then there's the market side. And within the market side, there's a breakdown of various types of capital. Hedge funds move very fast. Pension funds move slow. So you kind of have both the placement of people in the real economy and companies in the real economy. And then you've got kind of different perspectives on 
risk and assets in the investment community. I think currently both large sets, investors and companies, are certainly having more active conversations around a potential Taiwan crisis. I think I'd say up until 12 months ago, it was always just kind of one of those things that we'd sort of characterize as potentially the biggest flashpoint in geopolitics and certainly in Asia, but always kind of five years off, five years off, five years off. And it may still be five years off, but people are acting as if it could be 12 months out, 24 months out, or thinking as if it could be 12 months out, 24 months out. So that conversation of being one of those risks that's always just a little bit too far in the future to really think about now has changed. And so now it is a very active discussion, particularly at the board level among major companies. Obviously, U.S. companies other foreign or non-Chinese companies, I'm sure Chinese companies are talking about it as well. I'd say we're still at the the conversation phase. I I don't see a bunch of companies that we work with taking very hard and large decisions around the issue at the moment, but the contingency planning is starting. What if a crisis happens? How are we going to react? What are we going to do with our people? Those conversations are now taking place. The next step would be actual contingency planning. And then after that, people start to think, okay, do we really need to impact our operations? Same largely on the investor side, which is just, you know, previously this is this, the issue would pop on the radar here or there, um, congressional visit to Taiwan or whatever. Now it's a more active conversation. Do we need to roll this into our overall thinking of how the world works? But no one's really actively trading a Taiwan crisis at the moment. Gerard, does that comport with with the conversations you're having? It does with the conversations that you and I and others are having because we're we're having these conversations together. I was actually going to make the comment slash maybe ask Andrew, how would you rank the risks of let's say cross-strait tensions in investors and MNC's minds like compared to other other risks because my my sense is like it's not for if you are deeply worried about your supply chains mm-hmm. particularly in tech sectors then it's going to be pretty high or big on your radar right. but if you're like a hedge fund it's just another thing to price in and you could probably respond to it quickly if necessary yeah that's a that's a really good question i'd say it's certainly in terms of geopolitical risks number 1 i think at this stage so i've had you know, several conversations this year, particularly on the corporate side, will, where people will say to me, my CEO has said, when we're focused in on pol- geopolitics, there's only one issue. It's Taiwan. It's Taiwan. It's Taiwan. Or they'll say U.S.-China, but they, they mean Taiwan. So I think when you think about the geopolitical portfolio, issue number one. When you think about China more generally, and this we've talked about, uh, most of the thinking around China currently still is kind of a hangover from zero COVID, right? Companies couldn't operate or had to shut down. They had people (laughs) locked in their apartments. Executives couldn't get over there. Investors couldn't go kick the tires and see see what's happening on the ground. And so coming out like coming out of zero COVID is obviously an important moment, but also the idea that for a lot of investors and companies, you know, there's this conversation like, is China uninvestable now? And that really, I think, came from not only the crackdown of the private sector over the past few years, but just people saw as of April last year in the most raw form possible through the Shanghai lockdown, just how aggressive the system can be when it needs to control something. And people, I think a lot of people had never seen that. And that really changed people's mentality. If I can give a little context for listeners that 
Jordan and I hosted a workshop the other day where we brought in some investors and, and Andrew joined as well. And the discussion had been framed on how are investors thinking about Taiwan Strait tensions. But what came out of the discussion ac across the investors was the, the real driver of shifting perceptions on China risk and, and willingness to, to put capital in markets there was not a worry about a tail risk like a, a, a war or even sort of an accidental confrontation collision between an F-16 and a PLA Air Force jet, but was the accumulation of, as Inder said, COVID, but also tech sector regulatory crackdowns. You know, I remember right after the Common Prosperity initiative was announced, and even though Beijing clawed it back a bit, there was this one-two punch of one, two, three punch of tech sector crackdowns, the ed tech knee capping, and then, you know, add on top of that, COVID was still going on as you had this restrictive policy. So it is something that was a helpful thing for me to come out of the conversation of thinking not everything is about Taiwan tensions, that even if you took the Taiwan issue out, you might still have some class of investors who would still be in the position of saying, you know what, it's just too, it's just too hard of a market to be investing in now. And I'd say layer on that, see what you think about this, Gerard, but I feel like part of that conversation was, and this is how I think the Taiwan piece really does fit in, is the common prosperity push, the private sector crackdown, zero COVID, and a slower growing economy. It's all about like the risk risk adjusted return that you're getting, right? And the risks on all of those things have gone up while the returns are, are going down. And then you put this potentially, you know, huge tail risk in there. And that's just part of this rising risk. Calculus. I should have mentioned Jack Ma as well, because I think one of the, the things about after he gave his speech in the fall of time is a flat circle, and I can no longer remember when that was 2020. I think that was also that was maybe one of the first big moves of shattering frameworks people had for political risk in China, because you would have said Jack Ma is somewhat He's a, you know, he's a national asset and and critical. And you saw this, how comfortable Beijing was, with yanking him off stage left. So it's basically just eight months of sustained regulatory political action in a climate also where China, you know, under Xi Jinping is is becoming sort of more opaque and unpredictable. So I know we're going to talk about Taiwan today, but that was a, I think that was an important takeaway of the discussion. Another thing that matters is whether investment or investment decisions, both in a sort of portfolio sense, but also the FDI sense, whether those are marginal or binary, right? So if, you, if you're a hedge fund you, and you're worried about regulatory risk in China, you, just, you might reduce your exposure to those sectors like ed tech you don't want to touch anymore, right? Or you could just reduce your overall portfolio allocation towards China. But if you're an economy or an MNC, and let's call it the real economy, and you're worried about where your factory is, you might only have one factory. If you're going to move it, one, it's very expensive, but two, it's basically a binary decision. And so how do you, like the idea of risk premium, which you talked about, that makes sense in a market perspective. But if you are dealing with supply chains, long-term strategic planning, it's very, very hard to price in that kind of binary risk particularly when the like the tail end risk here could be catastrophically bad but then if you if you plan based on the worst case scenario you also have the risk of foregoing potentially years of profits right and that so that to me is one of the big dynamics between let's call them financial investors versus real economy investors well that's a uh, that's a great point and i think what we're seeing companies start to do is if you're in that position you're right, it's very binary today. 
But if you say we get 50% of our profit from China now, how do we rejigger our business? So five years from now, it's 10%. And that's actually pretty much exactly what Micron, the company that's undergoing a cybersecurity investigation in China now, did. They saw the writing on the wall and they were like, we got to reduce our China exposure. Just like, you know, at our company, we try not to have one or two really big clients because if one of those walks away, then, you know, you're in trouble. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, so I think that is how you, a a board would think about it and try to move it from binary to adjusting various risk premia. So you're saying five years out, yeah, the risk premium has gone up, but our exposure has gone down. So Gerard, can I then ask you a question? And and then I want us to get back to Taiwan, but which is... So someone would look at the bilateral trade statistics of a month ago and see sort of what looked like historic levels of bilateral trade between the United States and China, and they would say decoupling is a myth. I wonder if you can tap into some of the conversations that we've been having and let us know why that might be not be the right way or looking at sort of observable macro statistics might not be the right way to think about decoupling. Sure. So in particular, I mean... There was the observation that in dollar terms, the value of U.S.-China trade hit a record level last year. But there's a few caveats. One is that it was a high inflation. Actually, it still was a high inflation economy. In volume terms, it was kind of flat. Depends what you're looking at. But some things like consumer electronics were actually contracting because peak demand had already been hit in 2021. I think the... The, the, the bigger issue is that a lot of that data is going to be lagging. And a lot we were just talking about strategic planning. These could be five to 10-year plans. And I think the high risk premium environment has not been in place for five years. It's been it sort of started with a trade war, but it's gotten much worse over the past year or two, right? So you'd expect some time, it takes some time for that to filter in. And one thing we we have heard in our discussions is that, and I, I haven't actually quantified this, I'm not sure how to do it, but there are some companies that are throwing forward their demand. So basically building up their inventory of Chinese inputs going from, say, only a few months inventory to well over a year's worth of inventory, which then affects those trade flows. So it looks like, oh, there's surging demand for Chinese products, yeah. but they're doing it explicitly because they're worried about getting cut off from Chinese supply chains. So that's, it, it cuts against the grain there. Great segue. I want to go back to Taiwan, which was the stated purpose of this podcast. So let me just stick with you for a minute, Jared, because I want you to put out some scenarios and then I want to get Andrew's response to them. We'll we'll talk about the sort of real black swan risk, which is an outright Chinese attack or or, or invasion of Taiwan. But I think it, it is equally helpful to think about these sort of left of invasion scenarios that are arguably higher probability, but still significantly potentially disruptive. So that menu of left of invasion scenarios is near infinite. So I'm not going to make you list near infinite possibilities. But can you just put out a few scenarios that are plausible if the probability is unknown, but it's it's non-zero that we might see over the next, you know, one, three, five, eight years. And then, and then I want to get a, a bit of a discussion on how some of those scenarios might affect markets. Sure. So I'll throw out three to the left of of the worst case. One could be some type of PLA quarantine or pseudo blockade of the island, which is 
close to the worst case scenario, but I still think much higher probability than the D-Day scenario of an actual direct attack on Taiwan. You could have a lower grade military issue, like as you already mentioned, a collision of a Taiwanese fighter jet with a with a PLA fighter jet that will spark some tensions that could escalate. Or there could be completely, you know, non-political things like Taiwan is in a highly seismic area. They could have a massive earthquake that could easily disrupt production of semiconductors. I think if you step back rather than just talking about the specifics of the scenarios and ask the question, what is it that companies are worried about in terms of scenarios? It's basically ultimately does it result in one of two risks? One is there a physical disruption to supply chains, whether it's because of fab, you know, semiconductor production in in Taiwan or the shipping lanes are interdicted or something like that, or and this is not mutually exclusive. Are there risks of major sanctions in either direction? And I think if if a scenario to the left does not have a decent chance of resulting in one of those two things, it's going to be discounted in terms of long-term planning. So let's think of one of these. And again, just just illustratively, just so we can start to bring markets in to these scenarios that are non-invasion scenarios. One of the ones that we talked about in our closed-door workshop that, that you were at, Andrew, was thinking about a, a possible accidental collision between two, two aircraft, a Taiwan and, a, and a, a Chinese one. So I guess as a first question, if, if we were to see the baseline of where tensions are today ramp up with something like that, what are some of the broad dynamics you would think could could possibly play out. And again, just for listeners, the hard thing with these scenarios is you have to simplify and by simplifying you leave out details which might be critical to making these conclusions. But Andrew's a good sport. So, just building on some of the conversation we we had in the in the in the workshop, just start to think through at a high level what might be some of the sort of first order implications we 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 might see here. And this might be what are firms what are the first questions they're asking you that morning, right? You you pick up Bloomberg or in Gerard's case, the Washington Times, and you see <laughs> that there is a, there's been this collision. What's the first question you get from clients? So having gone through the, the conversations and also just thinking through these scenarios, I mean, the, the first thing that market sectors are looking for is escalation. Like, does, does any given situation in this part of the world or around Taiwan specifically going to lead to an escalatory ladder, right? So let's say we're in the situation where there's a, a, an accident where two fighter jets, Taiwanese and Chinese fighter jet, crash into each other. If, if you're trading in that part of the world, that's there's already risk introduced. And so you're going to see like pretty typical, I think, what we'd call intraday moves, right, where Asian equities sell off, B probably weakens, but not to the extent that, you know, you'd call it an ongoing trade or really that you, it, it would move into the, the category of generalized risk, right? You're, specifically, you might sell some AD, Chinese ADRs, you know, basically China link Describe asset. an ADR, please. Yeah, so that's Chinese companies that have, you know, are listed in the U.S. basically. So if you have specific exposure to China-linked assets, you're probably going to fade those. You're going to, you know, those assets are not going to perform well, but it's not going to be crazy in the market. Why isn't that, Andrew? So just for the layperson, I would think if, if I saw that headline, I would be thinking because of the base the, the, the sort of foundation of tensions between the U.S. and China, I, I might expect this to be a trigger for something significant. So if I'm holding 
Chinese ADRs in the United States, why am I not just as a precautionary measure dumping those? So (laughs) this goes back to the idea that markets have hurting behavior and traders have and and portfolio managers have FOMO, right? If you're dumping ADRs and everyone else is like, I'm actually not that worried about it, I'm going to pick up ADRs and you just lost a bunch of money, right? So unless you have a very high conviction that this is going to end up in a worst case scenario that effectively you could make money out of, you're going to kind of be cautious and not try to get too far out in front of the market. And so that's why I, this was specifically from our conversation the other day. I thought it was interesting where we talked about where are the points where you hit more generalized risk, where traders are, or, or money managers are, they might make certain trades, but then when they think if things are escalating, let's say there's Taiwan demands an apology, China demands an apology, they both tell each other to go shove it and it looks like it's going to go back and forth and tensions are going to keep rising, then broader markets, people who aren't really focused on Asia or China, are going to start to take notice and they're going to start making risk-off trades. So, But it's not until that real risk-off mentality happens that you're kind of safe within the market movement. Like You don't want to be fighting against the market if they're not paying attention to it. So sticking with this, so phase one is sort of market participants trying to gauge early on in an event, escalate, de-escalate, right? And so for the de-escalate, where are they looking for signals? And, and Jared, uh, uh, turn to you as well, too. Well, I was going to pick up on two concepts you introduced, which is FOMO and uncertainty. So on the FOMO side, which is fear of missing out for those not tracking, one of the things that's come through in our discussions with investors is, generally speaking, a lot of your investors into your fund are much more likely to punish you for missing a rally than they are for missing an extreme tail end risk that others missed as well. So in the example here, it's like maybe some people are dumping ADRs, but if you think, actually, this is going to recover because of actual underlying valuation when this blows over, if you dump and lose that money, they're going to blame you for missing the rally, right? On the uncertainty side, there is a certain point, and I don't know exactly at what point this happens, when People are like, time out, we don't know what's going on. And then there's just a general flight to safety, buying U.S. Treasuries, maybe gold, some other generally safe stuff. And it's because at a certain point, I think general investors won't know, those who are not, say, regional specialists or whatever, are just not sure what's going on. Right. And then you just sort of have to pull back and wait. And then those those who think they're smarter then jump in and buy those assets that are distressed. Right. And we saw, I mean, I think a great example of this is the Russian invasion, right? So the sort of general consensus in Intel and until it happened, well, it wasn't the Intel, right? The, the Intel was that they were going to go in, that Russia was going to go into Ukraine. But the general consensus in the market was this doesn't make sense. You know, it, 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 it would so, be irrational. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and people didn't want to get too far out ahead of it. And so you saw assets creep a little bit linked to Russia, but then as soon as they went in, markets went crazy, right? And so there's one that's reflective of how the markets think, but it's also really reflective of the idea that policymakers aren't going to be able to look to markets to predict something like this. So I want to keep moving us forward. So to try to keep this very simple on a decision tree, we've got escalate, de-escalate. So de-escalate, just very, very quickly, Gerard, where do you think folks will be looking for those sort of signals quickly? And then I want to ask, I want to now come to the escalatory spiral to try to understand how, how market participants will, will react. 
Well, I, I think the obvious signals would be what's coming out of Beijing, what's coming out of Washington, maybe to some extent what's coming out of Taipei. And if they're, and they would be comparing it to previous statements and at least broadly comparable events, is there any chance of reconciliation? Is there any indication there might be negotiations? Even a rumor of, oh, maybe there will be some back-channel discussions might, might reduce attention. But anything that looks like it reduces the probability of resolution, that's what pushes it in the other direction. And it seems to be that looking to Beijing first, or, or if not first, that signals coming out of Taipei are, are a, a, I hate loathe to say this, but are a, a distant third between signals that you would, would want to see coming out of Beijing? I, th or, or I think that's partly because people always feel like Beijing's thinking is, you know, black box, enigma, and in this issue, in this instance, it probably would be. So I think that there's a bigger risk around not being able to understand the calculus in Beijing. Not, you know, it's just, you're not going to get information flows. And so you're going to assume the worst. And then, yeah, I think, you know, the kind of Beijing's in a way in the driver's seat of risk, right? It's either they decide to become more aggressive tor towards Taiwan or they find a way to de-escalate. And then the U.S. and Taiwan obviously need to, in such a scenario, need to help them identify and understand uh, an off-ramp, but they're the ones who have to take it, I think, in this. So now let's keep on the escalatory uh, dynamic. So we don't get these signals coming from Beijing or the United States or Taipei that that there's a potential off-ramp. So it looks like tensions are going to continue to to ratchet. At what point do markets start to get real jittery? And I think one of the things we've been leaving out of this, we've been talking about investors. We haven't been talking about real economy firms like MNC. So I wonder if now if we can move to sort of level two of of tensions. And and really, you could apply this framework to any event in 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 the straits. But let's go to level two. So Andrew, what are the some of the broad market dynamics you think would go if it appears that this potentially could continue to escalate? And also, what are MNCs thinking about, especially firms that are operating in, in China? Yeah, so I think phase two, you're kind of just seeing more of the same. And I know that's kind of a lame answer, but what I mean is you still haven't hit the threshold for, you've probably hit the threshold for more generalized market risk. So more market actors are looking at this, like maybe the sell-off that starts in Asia, then goes into Europe and goes into the U.S. from an equity standpoint. On the oil market's a little bit hard for me to read, like if people think a blockade's coming and yeah. oil you know, supplies to China will get disrupted, prices could spike. But also, if it disrupts Chinese oil demand, there's just a bunch. That one's a tough one for me to think about. But still, I think we're still like at level two, not in, even though we're at the generalized risk phase, we're not in what you'd say, like, the biggest sell off of the year or whatever. In phase two, I think MNCs are now having active discussions, probably centered around two things. One is like, do we have assets that are at risk? Or do we have people that are at risk? Yeah, I mean, for most MNCs, they might have things like you know cash reserves that they could theoretically transfer offshore from China, assuming capital controls don't block it, which they very well might. But a lot of their assets are going to be fixed assets, like factories, right? And so you can't actually liquidate that. I think the time to plan for that was years before this happened. So then the key the key question is, what do you do with your in-country personnel, at least particularly those that are foreign nationals? And you might see, uh, it depends on the time frame or, or the scenario, but you could imagine within a few days, you could see widespread, widespread evacuations of, of foreign personnel from MNCs flying out of China. And in, also in, in Taiwan, part, we should add. Yeah, yeah, and, right, exactly, in Taiwan. And also, I, this is something where you would think that the 
the events of 2022 might actually have some bearing on this because they might think, oh, actually, when they start locking down, they lock down really quickly. And so they might the the suddenness which they could trigger that might be slightly faster now than it was before that. So uh, instead of continuing to move up levels and having you, Andrew, continue to say nothing much will really change, let, let me then ask. So, and again, we're, we're now talking about a sort of broad conception of a crisis, but could you give some of the dynamics that might be at play that would shift us from a sort of cautious hedging to now more of a herd mentality where it's both de-risking, but I think also are people trying, when are when do you just have sort of generalized market activity? I, I guess I, I was going to ask a second question, which is obviously not every single firm investor is going to be on a pure de-risking. You're going to have a lot of fast money that is looking for opportunities, either because assets are being unfairly punished by the market, or I think one of the interesting things that has come out of our, our scenario planning exercises is second and third order trades, which you might not even be considering in like third country markets, that we wouldn't think of as being linked, but they're kind of a, a knock-on effect of a knock-on effect of a knock-on effect creates a, a potential sort of alpha. So just generalized thoughts of when do we reach that tipping point? Well, that's why the investors are making all the money and we're doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they're looking at the second and third orders. Yeah, I, so I think, I think you know, potentially step three it, it, it is that point where especially the fast money starts to move. So if we call step three, like step one's an accident, step two is sort of like uh, standoffs. No, they won't. They, yeah, yeah. And then step three is like very obviously China's moving towards like some kind of quarantine or blockade. Like ships are moving, troops are moving, planes are moving. Then I think the market really starts to say, okay, now, now something's happening. And I think anybody who can get out of Chinese linked assets quickly at that point absolutely will. Like, so you have stress on the Hong Kong dollar. You definitely have stress on the Taiwan dollar, all sort of downward stress. B is selling off. USD is definitely strengthening. Who's, who's caught last? When the so, music stops, who's, who, who doesn't get a seat? Uh, so this, I mean, that is more of the sort of longer-term capital. Like, let's say you made a private investment into a Chinese tech company that's not an IPO yet, that's like a small biotech company or something, and you did it five years ago, and you put in $10 million or something, whatever. I mean, you, it's almost like having a hard asset. You're not gonna, you're not gonna find a buyer for that, and it's gonna be very hard to, to get that money outside of China. I mean, here's another one. Like, that starts happening, Chinese playbook, capital controls right <laughs> so so it then becomes and that's why you could see like once you reach a certain point everybody knows capital controls are coming so they're trying to get whatever they can out you said the market would not be a good indicator of forward-looking tensions are there not some market relevant policy indicators that might indicate that though and jared bring you in as well if we start to hear rumors from mnc's in china that they're having trouble repatriating profits payroll whatever it is are, are there some things we could look to that might indicate, and this is my very clumsy way of trying to make a transition to now a, a sort of a Chinese invasion or attack, but I guess it even applies if China is now thinking to really ramp up tensions. Uh, rhetorical question, Gerard. Might we not see some some economic activity or policy activity that might indicate China is moving from the baseline? Yeah, I mean, a lot of – so capital controls are the obvious one for investors – uh, the for firms as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and firms, but especially investors because they have cash or liquid assets they can maybe get out. The problem is a lot of the capital controls in China are fairly informal. It's window guidance based. I mean, you talk about 
rumors of companies having a hard time getting profits repatriated. Those rumors exist now. I can't confirm them. Window guidance is real, by the way. Yeah, you know, it is a real thing. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So so you won't actually know. I think there, you'd have to look at it through other signals. So it, look, it would be what well, is— Well, you'd, you'd hear the chambers would be complaining— because their member companies in China, for example, are are you know this happened when Andrew and I were in, you know, working together. I remember 2015, end of 2015, early 2016, you started to hear sort of after the you know A share market sort of debacle. I forget there's some other proximate reasons, but it was you began to hear uh, August 11th, 2015. Yeah, you began to hear a number of MNCs. <laughs> Do you remember where you yeah, were on August 11th, 2015? It's like when, when man landed on the moon. That's yeah. that's that's Gerard's version. The mini so so I think you would. You would hear this, yes. But that so that was a case where they were putting in capital controls to stop capital outflows for financial stability reasons. It's it doesn't from the stability perspective. It doesn't matter what's causing the outflows. All that matters is that they're happening. And so it could be the case that investors get spooked. They pull money out. The PBOC or safe or whatever puts in capital controls to stop it. It doesn't necessarily tell you anything about China's intentions, right? I think you have to you have to pair it with other indicators like. What are you seeing in terms of troop movements to the extent you can? There'll be other chatter. What is happening in propaganda circles? What are Chinese officials saying? Are there other economic policies like, in extreme case, rationing or any uh, indications that there's but export controls? To simplify this in the economic space, obviously, if you see troop movements and don't see capital controls, you'd still be you'd still be worried about Chinese actions. So I'm wondering, is there just a- Not with Russia. People didn't react. Oh, so. Fair enough. But what is it? Once bitten, twice shy? Yeah. I, that, may, that may not work anymore. I'm wondering, is there a, a package of indicators you could put together absent the military movements that might indicate? And if the answer is no, the answer is no. But- I think you could imagine a bunch of policies that when taken together would raise the concern. The problem is what you're testing it against is something that hasn't happened before. So how do you use that? Like if, if, if you like try to construct an index of economic policies indicating military intent, you have nothing to benchmark it against. And so like we could debate what those policies would be. I think there would be other policies, not just capital controls, but you'd have to look at it holistically. It can't just be market indicators. Yeah, I think the answer is probably no, that that doesn't exist simply because, I mean, so I th- it, there is a chicken and an egg thing here, which is like, you know, do investors and companies get spooked and then kind of precipitate some of the things that we'd expect to see in the case of a of an invasion. But I, my view is kind of like with the Russia thing, even though investors will be more attuned, it's, not, it's such, a, such an extreme scenario that you're not really going to most, most, I think investors and definitely most companies are not going to start really taking big decisions and moving large amounts of money or assets until it's a certainty that something really bad is happening. And in that case, I think it's like, there would obviously be, like, uh, I would presume there would be very clear military movements that are kind of driving that understanding, right? Unless China has some way of positioning itself for an invasion where nobody could really see it, which I just ha- have a hard time believing. I mean, this is an argument for, like, China watchers in general, right? It's, the point is don't don't depend on markets to save you predictively. It has to be – there are other signals. There could be that things that, that Xi Jinping says that are – 
not synchronized with previous statements that you know people in general who are not looking at this closely might overreact to. But if people like Jude are saying like, "Oh, this is different," yeah. that I think is what's going to really free people. Just out. to let you know, no one will be looking to Jude <laughs> to, for indicators. But this, I mean, this is what we did talk about: is you know, just what do we as China watchers look for? I mean, if and this is one of the things I mentioned the other day is like if you've got front page or, you know, home page of the People's Daily characterizing things like a people's war is coming or, say, you know, if, if you the language around the propaganda would would change. That's definitely an indicator I'd be looking for. Sad thing is once you start thinking of some of these indicators, we are starting to see some of these indicators, right? Well, like, so especially in the propaganda space. Yeah. I, I mean, I it's hard to so it's hard to disentangle. Some of the preparations for war, for some of the preparations of Xi Jinping's, the United States is, is all out trying to contain us. So drives towards self-sufficiency. Are they trying to basically gear up for a war or are they basically trying to circumvent what they consider a U.S. embargo strategy? Hardening the people with an idea of struggle in people's war. Is it because you're preparing for conflict or again you You think we're now we are engaged in a sort of a, a counter-containment strategy vis-a-vis -vis the United States Well, and the, but that's exactly I think like going back to where we started this why investors and companies and obviously policymakers are thinking about this issue in a very different way than they were even 12 months ago, which is the context around it has changed. There's a bunch more kindling there. And, and so if the if a match goes on the kindling, then it can move really quickly, right? And so I think that because of that contextual piece, I think stakes are raised, tensions are raised, and it's the de-escalatory options are more constrained. I want to end this on an incredibly depressing note, which is one of the features of the discussion here is trying to think about is Xi Jinping on a timeline for an outright invasion? Does Beijing think it's running out of time? Is the prospect for quote unquote reunification or what I think we should non-euphemistically call annexation? Is that run out and just trying to launch an attack? And I think no one could say that that's not a possibility. The Beijing, Beijing does not say that's not a possibility. but. Again, another feature of the discussion, especially in the discourse on uh, how China would think about an attack that I notice here that's underweighted is the the practical economic implications for, for China of, of doing so. And so, Jared, you, you and I have written on this. I wonder if you could just at a broad level, is there a clean path for China to launch an attack or an invasion? I, sorry, that's leading the witness. I'll rephrase it. What would the realistic and probable economic implications be if China were to launch some sort of invasion. And again, we, it, it, would, it probably wouldn't be a Vladimir Putin. We just line the troops up and send the PLA over the Taiwan Straits, but it would involve kinetic activity. It would involve missile strikes. It, it, it would involve casualties. Taking aside the human tragedy and enormity, how does that ripple out through China's economy? So I think the pathway to achieving annexation without economic catastrophe is very, very narrow. You would have, I mean, answer it in reverse. So what would it take to get to that? I think it would have to be a very quick action, one that involves minimal physical disruption or destruction, one presumably where there's little, if any, resistance from Taiwan, and there's little, if any, resistance from the United States and other powers, and there are no major sanctions in response. 
So you could maybe imagine that with like a whole bunch of assumptions, but that seems pretty improbable to me. That's almost akin to like peaceful reunification. It's like they're not even trying, right? I think more realistically, it doesn't take much to disrupt fabs that are incredibly sensitive in, in Taiwan. It would be almost certainly involving massive disruptions in maritime trade. And it's not just how much flows through the Taiwan Strait, because some of that can be rerouted. The issue is all basically all of Taiwan's major ports are on the West Coast. And there are at least six major Chinese ports within pretty easy flight or missile range of that conflict area. Yeah, if you just, I mean, we, we don't have a, a map here, but if you're basically going from Shanghai down to Hong Kong, that's several major ports. That's also China's most prosperous cities. That's also where its most important tech and innovation clusters are, Shenzhen, Shanghai. And it's also where most of their major manufacturing is. So it's kind of the worst geographic territory for China to have a conflict. It would be like if we were fighting the Chinese over the Farallon Islands, but like everything important in the United States was in near, near San Francisco down to LA. Andrew, what do you think, again, we're stylizing what would be a, a, a catastrophe and we're having to simplify, but just how do you think this would affect Chinese markets? And what do you think MNCs and investors are doing if it now credibly looks like China has launched the invasion? Are markets even open? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, certainly not like in Hong Kong, I don't think. I, is the dream of renminbi internationalization dead <laughs> after this? Finally, it died. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just I want to uh, obviously totally agree with Gerard's point. That scenario just like is of of kind of effortless takeover, no sanctions, no response from the U.S. I mean, it's just we we can imagine it, but it's like I would say close to a zero percent possibility, right? And so for me, it it really kind of depends on the global reaction, like. Does the U.S. try to sanction the Chinese central bank? That would be a total disaster, right? Um, <laughs> I don't think you can, like, actualize that um, kind of policy. So I think the – I think And do we, Gerard? I mean, if we're having U.S. servicemen and women dying, if, if we're having casualties from Japan – I think there's a there's a general sort of meme that R Russia is not China, and that's totally true. But I wonder if the the inverse of that is underestimating, basically thinking, well, well there's no way we're going to do anything close to what uh, to China that we did to Russia. But I wonder if that's a stylized point. That's true. But if we're in the middle of a conflict, I wonder if some of these previously unthinkable things about just cutting the Chinese economy off from U.S. dollar access actually becomes plausible. I think the fact that the Chinese economy is so much more important than the Russian economy raises questions about the plausibility of using sanctions in advance of a conflict, or at least before it was completely obvious it was going to happen. I think once that conflict happens, and especially if U.S. forces are involved in taking casualties, yes, I think it's a very high probability we'll use we'll go nuclear with sanctions. In part, by the way, because the physical disruptions without sanctions will be so severe, it's not clear to me the sanctions matter all that much anyway, right? And so, so I, I do, do will we nuke? Will we, would we SDN the PBOC if they sink a U.S. aircraft carrier? Yeah, I think we will. And then, then it's going to just be off to the races, and it well, will be catastrophic. That's a good point. I mean, and I guess you got to think of the other knock-on effects, which is, in that scenario, American citizens are not safe in China, right? So it's like you're you're getting like I was thinking like one reason we would 
try not to do that is we'd be hurting our own companies who are operating in China, right? To, so we'd have to be willing to inflict some own pain on ourselves, right? And then obviously, I think in this scenario, like markets are just, it's like, you know, global financial crisis style, you know, just absolutely slaughter in the markets. And but, but even if there's no sanctions, if there's actually a conflict, the American assets are probably going to get nationalized anyway. Right. Right. So I, I guess like when we're – this is kind of what I tell – I used to, when I lived in Beijing, when people would ask to this point in the scenario, I was like – I would always say if I blast out an email when I'm wheels up out of the Beijing airport, then you know everything's gone the worst yeah. possible to the worst possible scenario and you should sell everything and you know, put it all in cash and <laughs> hide so, it under your mattress. Let me then ask the final question, which is let's – move one step further, a world after China has launched an invasion of, of Taiwan, the United States, but with a, a coalition of partners and allies has levied pretty significant sanctions. You've got investors have all fled. You've got MNCs who have certainly moved all their personnel. And I think arguably for reputational reasons and sanctions reasons just would have no play space in China or be extraordinarily restricted. Does China can China recover from that? I mean, well, frankly, the whole global economy has probably just seized up. Yeah, it would have been um, like so a heart attack. It's, it's a, um, I think the sort of un, non-thoughtful answer to this is, oh, but foreign investors and MNCs would certainly surely want to have access to the Chinese market again. I think the more thoughtful, like multi-step answer is, it's not going to be the same Chinese market anymore. And it's going to be a much more closed system. They're probably going to be in something like a wartime economy. Yeah, it would be fortress China at that yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. imagine the politics. And imagine imagine how foreign firms, particularly firms from combatant countries, are treated even after, after we have some settlement. I think China as an international investment destination is basically over in that scenario. Well, I think that's a particularly inappropriately um, optimistic point to leave it on. No, but I really appreciate the conversation. I, this is one of those that it's it's – there's so many – uh, unpacked assumptions and there's so many much additional territory to explore but i think that just indicates or signals that this is such a, a underexplored topic can i just one i think that point is you like, want to find a more optimistic no opinion. no i i was just gonna say like part of this exercise is to i think help policymakers think through the economic and financial impacts of their potential decisions in these scenarios but i guess the point is like there becomes a point where the economics aren't going to matter Right, globalization didn't stop World War One, didn't stop World War Two, and the business community saying, "Hey, what about our business interests?" isn't necessarily the counterweight to something terrible going on in for World War Three, <laughs> if we want to call it that. But it, I guess the point being, the economics and financial aspects will matter a lot more in the early part of this, and then you cross some Rubicon, and then. It's obviously. I mean, if economists were running the world, we would never have wars. <laughs> Andrew, Gerard, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.